0: ucb life issues with paul hammond and a very warm welcome to this week's life issues Here's a question how do we know that what we believe is true i think there comes a moment in every christian's life where they have to confront that question if they are to have a faith and an experience of god that is resilient and has true depth for me I was at Bible college, and my doubt was a cross between a wall that I crashed into and a cliff that I felt as though I was teetering on the edge of. But finding God in that place meant that although I have struggled with many situations, questioned much of the church's party line, and despaired often of the fickleness of Christians, including me, I have never again doubted God. So when I heard of Christians of note, artists, musicians, preachers, deconstructing their faith and questioning their belief, I thought, well, that's no bad thing. Strip away the dross, find the pure gold of the gospel. Except so many seem unable to do that to separate the reality of a loving God out of the nonsense of the church and the hurt that weak teaching has caused so many to be disillusioned by. And so they seem to bounce off that wall into a misshapen progressive faith or even on occasion tip over the edge of that cliff into unbelief and even the rejection of, of the name Christian. So, what is going on? What has created this tide of disillusionment and crisis of faith? What is the culture that has allowed the germs to multiply? And is the progressive Christianity, beloved of so many, the latest heresy? Or simply an application of faith for the modern age, stripped clean of the failings that have caused so many? To stumble well Elisa Childers may have more than a passing idea on this she used to be in a band but now she's a respected speaker she talks about apologetics and Christian worldview at conferences and so on she even hosts her own popular YouTube channel but the thing is she's walked this crisis of faith highway and faced the option of a progressive route and found A pathway. Elisa Childers.com is her website, and you can find her books, Live Your Truth and Other Lies and Another Gospel, online and in good Christian bookshops. Elisa, welcome to Life Issues.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. Been looking forward to this. So, what is
0: going on? I mean, it (laughs) seems to be affecting the church in the States more than it is the church here in the UK. But it really does seem as though we've got an epidemic of crisis of faith.
1: Wow. So right now I'm actually writing a book on the phenomenon of deconstruction. So this is like right in the wheelhouse of where I'm living right now. And what's what I observe in studying what I don't know that I would call it a movement as much as it's an explosion, right, Um, So here in the States, it's largely a reaction against evangelical Christianity, which that word means a lot of different things to different Mm -hmm. people. It brings, you know, conjures up images, different images to different people, depending on their exposure to it. Um, And so it's largely a reaction against whatever that perception is, right, or whatever kind of church environment they grew up in. Uh, but that's not to say that we don't see deconstruction happening among you know catholics and others but this it, there just seems to be a real microcosm of it happening in response to evangelicalism even with the popular hashtag exvangelical that's yeah. often used in conjunction with the deconstruction hashtag um and so what what i've observed in in studying it is like you know your your uh, intro was so good because it's true i think every real Christian sees the failings of the church or they see uh, where the church has become overly politicized or maybe uh, focusing on the wrong things or even abuse, legitimately abusive environments that people have had to navigate through and things like that. Um, so there's that, there's always that in the backdrop, but then there's also seems to be like these different things that can trigger somebody or or it, it, like a crisis that happens when it meets that foundation. So it could be um, a response to purity culture. You know, I don't know if this was as big in the in the UK as it was in the States, but back when I was in high school, there was this real emphasis on um, staying, you know, quote unquote, pure before mm-hmm. you got married. And the, the sort reason of it, silver
0: it's, ring movement and that sort of exactly, thing. Exactly. Yeah. There were
1: purity balls like these galas, these big parties where fathers and daughters would exchange vows and rings, basically vowing to uh remain virgins until they get married now when i was in high school and my my friends were doing this and i remember even back then going this is not a good idea <laughs> right like i i affirmed the biblical sexual ethic i i thought that it was you know god's design for merit, for sex was between covenant marriage between a man and a woman i i really believed that and wanted to live my life that way but this whole idea of making a vow and then a ring and then it just something about that just rubbed me the wrong way and i wasn't a huge fan of that so i I think i was less impacted by that than some but i've heard stories of people saying like you know that they were girls who had lost their virginity were compared to you know toothpaste tubes that were emptied or flowers that had all the petals plucked off and so they're definitely although the messaging i think was right as far as encouraging christian kids to live god's way sexually right I think in implementing that, there were some missteps and even some really horrific abuses. I've heard stories from people as well. And so a lot of it's a reaction against that. I I do tend to see people... They tend to take whatever their particular experience was and then assign that to to all churches, which um, I don't think that's exactly right. So there's just a lot of different factors that when it meets with the environment they grew up in, it just can create this explosion.
0: And I suppose that's one of the the questions that has struck me the most listening to to various people. And, and we're not going to name names in, in this conversation because there have been plenty of of Twitter feeds that have identified people and so on. But but. What has struck me is the the apparent inability for people to look beyond the poor doctrine, the Mm. wrong teaching, the inadequate responses to people's needs, and sometimes the overt power plays that have caused abusive situations. That when we grow to a place in adulthood where we can see the negativity of it, why can't people see... Beyond that, to the reality of God and His Word, why do we have to focus on the church and allow that disillusionment to drive us away from our faith?
1: Right. That's a that's a, the question, isn't it? And I think in my in just in studying deconstruction, what I see is that in many cases, well, in, I would say I, I don't have data for this, so this is just my observations and my personal research, but I think it's pretty fair to say that in at least 90% of what we see happening on the online deconstruction movement. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who uses the word deconstruction means they're leaving their faith, but I'm talking about the dominant expression online really is people leaving, you know, orthodox Christianity. Mm. And so often, I think that is because our culture has sort of adopted a postmodern way of approaching truth without even realizing it. And so, um, you know, sort of the idea that when it comes to religion and morality, objective truth can't, if it exists, it can't be known. So that's why we need to just, you know, let each other live our truths and not try to tell the other person they're wrong. So when somebody comes around singing, saying, hey, I know what the truth is. It's found in the Bible. The Bible is our authority for truth. Um, Jesus is the only way. Uh, you know, his death was substitutionary. It was sacrificial there will be final judgment when Christians come along saying things like this in the mind of the postmodern. That's a power play that, you know, that and there, these doctrines are definitely perceived that way in the deconstruction movement. So any sort of authority that the church might have or that the Bible might have is perceived as abusive just in nature because it would claim to have authority. But
0: how did we get here? I mean, because throughout yeah. history there have been plenty of occasions, and and even through my personal history, there have been plenty of occasions where I've sat in church and I've been just been—it's been so crystal clear that what is being taught was weak. It wasn't truth. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't bringing the heart of God for my moment. But it didn't shake my confidence in Him. Is it mm-hmm. simply that we have allowed that? Postmodern attitude of the world to seep into our faith, that we haven't guarded the pathway sufficiently.
1: I think so, because I think what a lot of people like, and and just granted, there are a lot of people who have deconstructed, who retain the title Christian, but they've gotten rid of any meaningful understanding of the gospel and what might go along with that. So, you know, certainly in their minds, that's what they think they're doing. They think they're saying, well, I'm not going to reject God. I'm not going to reject Jesus. I'm just rejecting what they perceive to be toxic doctrines. But Mm -hmm. among the toxic doctrines are things like Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You know, Jesus is the final judge and humans are sinners who need a savior. We need to be saved and redeemed and reconciled to God. These doctrines are viewed as oppressive and abusive. They're viewed as just things people created to try to control people. And so a lot of people are, they're they're actually saying, look, that's a toxic doctrine. That's something that's very oppressive to me. So I want to get rid of that, but I'm going to hold on to God. But then they end up sort of creating a God in the image of how they would like him to be. And so they create a spirituality that sort of works for them, that feels right for them, but they're not using scripture as an authority. They're not using even objective truth, really, as an authority. It's it's, And I think we got here through postmodernism. If you go back and look at some of the philosophers in the 60s, in particular people like Michel Foucault, and then you have... Uh, gramsci and you have derrida in fact for derrida you know he didn't believe that objective meaning could be communicated with words he didn't think words had objective meaning so he didn't it was like the the intent of the author or the speaker had no more bearing on the meaning of the text than the interpretation of the hearer yeah and i mean we see that all over the place right it's people just sort of creating meaning and rejecting the objective meaning that could be found in words and in religion and morality and all of these things.
0: Does the church have to accept some of the responsibility, not just because of the, the uncomfortable or maybe even the the erroneous things that it has taught and, and maybe some of the things, like we mentioned, the purity movement that have, have so obviously sown imbalance into so many people. That is something that does need to be addressed and perhaps that's another program that we could do. But it is is part of the... The issue here that the church has, that we have sought to, to amalgamate with the culture around us, mm. even to the extent of watering down what we have said yeah. in the church, as a consequence, people then think, well, it's okay to take that stage further.
1: Mm, mm, that's a great point. I do. I do think that, uh, especially, of course, you know, my I don't know what's really going on in the UK, but it, from my perspective here in the US, I think... Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that it's sinful to have a big church or that it's wrong to want to grow your church big, but the the sort of real specific thing we refer to when we talk about the megachurch model of the seeker-sensitive movement, I think that's done a lot of damage because mm-hmm. what it's done is it's made the church, uh, or many churches, I should say, prioritize numbers over real discipleship. Because the truth is, is when you preach the gospel unadulterated, there are going to be people who aren't going to like that and and it's they're going to leave right they're not going to like that um and so the church may grow may not grow but i think some of the healthiest churches are the ones that stay intentionally small uh i i've got a, some friends that are part of a church in uh, tucson where once they get to 500 people they break off and they plant a new church and they they try to keep their churches at under 500 that that way everybody can have personal discipleship pastors can actually pastor and not just become (laughs) like platform celebrities and and you know and again i have so much grace and patience for people trying to figure this stuff out because it's not easy and a lot of times we don't even realize we've been influenced by our environments until you know we're in it real deep and then you got to figure out well how do i make changes from here So I've seen a lot of positive things. I visited a church who realized that their leadership model was not biblical. They kind of had the CEO model of the one guy that called all the shots. And so they were, when I visited them, they were in the process of switching from that model to an elder led model, more biblical Type of model, so I do th- have a lot of hope. You don't see the hope a lot on social media, you <laughs> only see sure, the negative yes. things. So I, I felt compelled to say that, but um, but yeah, I do think the seeker sensitive model, uh, was you know, definitely had influence on these things. In America, we've exported false gospels to the rest of the world, like the prosperity gospel. I think largely we could say progressive Christianity as it's expressed today. Certainly, it has its roots in theological liberalism, which came out of Germany, but also out of the New England area of the United States with the rise of Unitarianism. But, um, you know, we've exported a lot of things to other places as well. Um, And so, yeah, I I do think we need to account for that. And Mm. that needs to be Talked about and and there need to be there needs to be some reformation.
0: You mentioned in passing that idea of a progressive Christianity, and um, I, I suppose in some ways you you've got this falling off the cliff of abandonment of faith that comes from deconstruction. But you've also got this this move towards a I'm holding on to to the idea of God and belief in God and belief in Jesus, but I'm going to alter and change the doctrines that I'm going to accept. I think the phrase you use, I'll reject toxic doctrine. When I had a look at a definition of progressive Christianity, I mean, there are some elements of it which you have to say, some emphasis which you have to say, it looks like a good thing. Emphasis on social justice, on caring for the poor, on on dynamic activity to, to actually minister in a practical way to the needs of people around you and show Jesus' love in that way. That doesn't sound like a bad thing at all. So what are the problems with it, Elisa?
1: Right. So, when I analyzed the movement of progressive Christianity, I wanted to analyze it entirely from a theological perspective. Now, there certainly are political elements to be considered, but my analysis was more just theological. And so, what I argue in my book, Another Gospel, is that if progressive Christians were simply a group of people that wanted to focus more on the poor, or they just might be changing their minds on some political issues or something like that, I wouldn't have written a book about it. That wouldn't be, you know, that that would just be brothers and sisters in Christ that I might disagree or agree with on certain things and we can talk that out but the reason I called it another gospel and really the thesis of the book is that it's a different religion is because at its core it's really not just that it it's it's a rejection of core distinctives and teachings that really make Christianity unique in the world. And I'm not talking about secondary issues like women in ministry or speaking in tongues. I'm talking about like why Jesus died on the cross. Mm. Was he resurrected? Uh, is there a, a heaven and a hell? I mean, there there's like kind of core questions that in the progressive movement get uh, largely denied and tossed by the wayside. And also, I just I, I kind of want to say this too. We hear the term social justice, and I think every Christian, every real Christian goes, well, I want to do that. I mean, of course, I want to stand up for people who are oppressed, take care of the poor. Um, But there is a technical definition of social justice in academia that has trickled down, which largely is the expression of it that the progressive church embraces. And that is not what they're talking about. They're not talking about you know, going and helping homeless people or maybe bringing a homeless person to your house and helping them get fixed up and get a shower and maybe help them find work and get back on their feet. That's not what social justice is about in culture. And according to progressive Christianity, it's an entire framework of viewing the word justice through the lens of equal outcome for everyone, which really is kind of rooted in a Marxist Marxist ideology. So we have to make sure I always just prefer to use biblical terms like biblical justice, because social justice is one of those you know, those firework terms that mm-hmm. means different things to different people. Um, and, and that's largely not what they're talking about. So that's going to fall over into sexuality issues and all sorts of issues in the progressive church that, you know, Christians who live according to the Bible would not be able to advocate for.
0: Do you think that the the reality of the the doctrinal positions, and we'll, we'll unpick some of those in a minute and just get some Perhaps a greater sense of the sort of things that we were talking about. But do you think that the the language that's used around things like social justice um, it obscures the perception of people looking at this development and gives it perhaps a orthodoxy and credence that draws people in, perhaps even deceives.
1: Mm. Well, I do I, I, if you look at the at progressive Christianity as a movement, uh, the types of causes that they're advocating for are exactly the types of causes that the secular world is advocating for. So, yeah, I could see why that would be a really attractive move, because then you get to be saying, like, we're the good Christians, right? We're the ones that want the same thing you guys want, and we we agree that this is all good. And And that can be a mixed bag. There can be some legitimately good causes in there, but for the most part, it's going to just be along the, the ideologies that are the spirit of the age, you might say, the zeitgeist of culture. And so then progressive Christianity ends up advocating for some things that the Bible would really stand against. And I think that's the uh, the thing people need to keep in mind is that in the name of social justice, we might actually be doing injustice. And uh, so uh, I, I just think, you know, it's it's important for us to think these things through. And I that's why I always just prefer to use biblical yeah, language, yeah. like let's get off the hamster wheel of culture and use yeah. biblical language.
0: So what are the things that you have identified that the... Progressive that a progressive church might mm-hmm. embrace, or that someone who, in deconstructing their faith, is saying, "I'm going to reject these toxic doctrines." What are the sort of doctrines we're talking about?
1: Right. So, if we trace the narrative arc of the gospel, and I'm just keep I'm trying to keep this as broad as possible to and en- embrace all Orthodox denominations. Right. This is we're not going to get into the weeds of. You know uh different things but just the basic gospel right
0: that's that's another podcast yes definitely
1: i know right (laughs) um so so maybe it's more helpful to think of it this way in progressive christianity it's very fluid there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella it certainly is not monolithic in its approach to what they would positively affirm about jesus and about the bible but what emerges when you study the movement is they're very united in what they deny about the historic gospel. And the and the, the first thing that's going to go is the idea that humans are inherently sinful. Whatever you want to call it, if you want to call it original sin or you want to go the Eastern way and say we didn't inherit the guilt, but we do have this, in, this s- s- proclivity towards sin that is largely rejected in the progressive church in fact i pulled off of a website of a progressive church their version of the good news and the capital g capital N, good news was that you are inherently united with god so in the progressive church you are not your sin does not separate you from god um you are not inherently sinful you should rather see yourself as as inherently good and if you feel separated from God, it's just in your own mind. It's something that you've created. So you just need to like correct your thinking, rather than find salvation in Christ. You need to correct your thinking and realize that you are not. You don't need this uh, supposed salvation that the church says you need. You just need to realize how inherently good you are. And you can imagine just if you kind of that starts knocking down all the dominoes mm-hmm. of of the gospel from there.
0: The idea, I suppose, being that God's grace covers everything to the extent that you don't need to worry about any element of your shortcomings or shortfalls from what the Bible says.
1: Right. Well, it's it's, so in progressive Christianity, they really reject this idea that Adam and Eve's rebellion against God uh, ushered in and, you know a sin nature and that that sin nature was passed down to their descendants this is this is roundly rejected and so um they they're not going to deny that sin exists of course you know they obviously everybody can look out and see that people have done horrible things to each other and to the world um but the solution for that is not that you need to be reconciled to God. It's just that you need to realize you've never been separated. So the doctrine of the Imago Dei, which we would all affirm, human beings made in the image and likeness of God, and because of that we have inherent dignity, value, and worth, every Christian should be able to say amen to that, right? But in progressive Christianity, they kind of skip the fall part, the part of where that image becomes distorted by sin and needs redemption, needs reconciliation. So so,
0: what was the purpose of the cross then?
1: Well, so in progressive Christianity, any meaningful explanation of the cross being substitutionary, like Jesus taking my place, is rejected. This is uh, promoted as cosmic child abuse. This is a view they would roundly reject. So the, the primary expression of what Jesus accomplished on the cross in the mind of the progressive is that When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that was Jesus' heart of love and forgiveness for everybody. That's the example we should follow. Jesus shows us the embodiment of forgiveness when he said that on the cross. So in the mind of the progressive, the cross isn't a necessary mechanism for atonement. It's really God demonstrating his love for us by showing us what it looks like to forgive someone uh, you know, to forgive the world for crucifying God, essentially. So, it's uh, it, any sort of substitutionary atonement element is is usually rejected. Now, again, not universally. There there's a broad spectrum of beliefs, but that's the primary expression.
0: So, when Paul says things that it is not by works, lest any should boast, and when when the the New Testament over and over again states that we all fall short of the glory of God that there is one route to forgiveness and that is through the sacrifice of the cross that uh, what are those those elements of the bible simply sliced out for a progressive doctrine
1: so we have to discuss the progressive view of the bible to understand this um so primarily in progressive christianity the bible is not viewed as authoritative now many progressives will say it's inspired they do not mean what christians have historically meant when they talk about the bible being divinely inspired in the uh, progressive literature it's more like something god might use to inspire you or uh parts of it might become the word of god to you at certain times but there's a real disdain in the progressive movement for the Apostle Paul, for example. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a progressive pastor on Facebook saying, you know, Paul made a great kindergartner. In other words, he really represents Christianity in its infancy. Uh, but this progressive pastor said, but he makes a terrible professor. So in other words, we don't view what Paul says as authoritative. We can look at Paul and understand what the earliest Christians believed about God in their time and place. But even as Brian McLaren says, we have a higher and wiser view of God now. So he compares the scriptures to fossils. You can dig them up, dust them off, and you can know what the ancient Israelites believed about Yahweh, but that isn't the way Yahweh actually is. In fact, progressive scholar Peter says that outright. That's not how God is, but just how He was perceived to be by the authors of Scripture, those who are communing with God in their time and place. So, Scripture is not the authority for where you get your information about God in the progressive mindset.
0: You're listening to UCB Life Issues. This week we are speaking to Elisa Childers. She. You can find out more about her by going to our website, elisachilders.com. Her books, Live Your Truth and Other Lives and Another Gospel. Take a look at the reality of the deconstruction of... Of faith that so many seem to be engaging with around the world and also the way in which that is leading to what has been called progressive faith and progressive Christianity, which does have its roots in some of those sort of liberal theology ideas, which actually were the very things that caused me to reach my crisis of faith when I was at Bible college. So having walked that journey a little bit myself, I was interested to note that you also walked this and you experienced the what I call the highway of the crisis of faith and of being a part of a church which started to go down the road of progressive theology. Tell us a little bit about your experience of those two things.
1: Well, by the time I came to this church, I had a lot of the same concerns that I was hearing people at that church have. Like, just some of the more superficial stuff about evangelical culture. Um, I, as you, you mentioned earlier in your intro that I had been in a band, we toured all over the United States and you know, I kind of got to see the the good, certainly, but also the bad and the ugly of the church. And so I I had kind of, I was a little bit cynical and jaded about the church. And so I came to this church where people kind of had some of these same concerns. And, and I, that was really what you, I think was really united me with them. And I loved the pastor's, intellectual approaches to his sermons. It just seemed like like we are home. This, this is the church we want to be at. And so after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of uh, what he described to be an inner circle type study and discussion group. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side with a seminary level education. And this sounded really exciting to me because I never really had investigated the intellectual side of my faith. I was just sort of, I was very devoted a deeply devout Christian, loved God's word and loved Jesus my whole life. But I didn't really know, know how to explain why I believed all that was true. But what I wasn't prepared for was that in the class, the pastor revealed to us that he was actually agnostic. He referred to himself as a hopeful agnostic. And of course, this sent red flags up, I but I, I didn't want to be judgmental. So I pushed that voice down and I said, I'm just going to keep an open mind but over the course of the four months that I lasted in the class, virtually everything that I had ever held dear, these these core beliefs about the nature of God, what the Bible is, the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible, um, who Jesus is and what he accomplished, all of these things were sort of picked apart. They were, they were deconstructed. They were explained away. And for as far as I know, um, everybody else in that class ended up walking away from what I would consider to be historic Christianity, meaning just those orthodox core beliefs that have united Christians for 2000 years. Um, and that's not to say certainly there have been heresies and false movements and schisms and reformations, you know, not trying to oversimplify church history, but there is a, there is something that we've been fighting about to keep, you know, to keep yes. um, at the core, right? So, um, and I, I'm watching all my friends walk away. And so while I was in the class, I would try to debate with them. I wasn't very good at it. But after we left the church and I was kind of isolated by myself, all of the doubts that had been planted really took root in my own heart and grew. And it threw me into a crisis of faith that brought me up to the edge of agnosticism. I really, the pastor had persuaded me intellectually that the Bible couldn't be trusted um, and that we didn't even have an accurate copy of what was originally written. And when, when that domino fell, I didn't know where to turn to know truth about God. And so it led me to even wonder if he existed at all. And thankfully, God, you know, in His faithfulness, led me to some really great resources to study some of these questions out. And it was years of study. It was, it was at least five or six years before I even started a blog or anything like that. I was just trying to trying to settle this thing for myself. But I came out on the other side of it, persuaded that the core claims of Christianity are true. Now, I made a lot of corrections on secondary issues along that that uh, journey. Certainly, my faith didn't look the same as it looked before but um but i needed to know what that core was i needed to know what what defines christianity what is it that once we once we reject this we're kind of rejecting christianity and so that was the primary focus of what i was trying to study
0: the thing is, there's an awful lot of positive, isn't that, in examining our faith. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. is, it is good for churches to take a long, hard... Part of the reason that there have been abuses throughout the centuries within the church is because people haven't taken a long, hard look at what they believe, haven't challenged what they were being preached. I mean, but Paul said, if an angel comes and tells you something that's contrary to what the Bible says don't accept it you know th- th- why is it that we are so inclined to simply sit back and be spoon-fed
1: mm. well yeah this has become sort of a big soapbox of mine since my experience because i know that part of the reason i was so rattled by the things that were discussed in this class is because it was the first time i'd heard many of these things. And so it was just like this avalanche of information that I didn't even have a category to process. So I'd be processing one question, and then the next week they'd be on to another question. And it was just like this uh, bullet spray of skeptical claims against everything I believed without even having sufficient time to process what had been said the week before. And so I think that, um, as you say, I am a huge advocate telling people, please think through your faith. Don't push down your doubts. If you are doubting something, in you know, engage with that doubt. Go on a journey of discovery, and what you'll find often is that you hear a skeptical claim against Christianity, and then you hear a really good rebuttal. And a lot of Christians go, "Oh, that's good enough," or they just hear the the claim and they go, "Oh, I know that's not true, so I'm not going to worry about it." But but what people don't realize is that rebuttal, you know, can go back and forth for a long time yes. before you can really shake it out to get to the truth of it. And it takes a lot of investigation. It takes a lot of energy and time and intellectual energy. And I think that social media does not help. We're used to, you know, just owning the Internet with a graphic meme or a GIF or a 27 second TikTok, which Mm -hmm. is just something I'm seeing in the deconstruction movement that is just a phenomenon is you'll have somebody take 27 seconds and completely unravel someone's faith. And you're just thinking, people, think it through a little more than this. Just sit down and think for thirty minutes about yeah. the presuppositions this person has, where they're, you know, where they might actually be factually incorrect. There's a lot of factually incorrect stuff out there, especially on TikTok. But we are trained to not think. We're trained to just kind of get that quick meme that makes us feel like that's the right answer, and we don't investigate any further.
0: Have we just become? sort of spiritually lazy or with a very limited spiritual attention span.
1: I think in some cases yes, although I will tell you I think that it's sort of you see things kind of shaking out. So when I go and talk with youth, you would expect youth to be this way, right? You'd expect them to have that TikToks attention span. But I find that Gen Z is maybe the younger side of Gen Z, maybe the teenagers and middle schoolers, they're very engaged and they have a lot of questions and they don't tend to approach their questions with a bunch of stigma, which is really interesting. I've had kids come up to me and be and just share their sexual struggles and you know, I'm trying to reconcile what I struggle with inside with what the Bible says, but it's not like they're ashamed to say it. So there's a there's a hopeful thing that mm. people of that generation are very open and engaged. And I've had kids come up to me and say, I'm not a Christian, but I'm considering it. I'm really, you know, looking into it and I appreciate you speaking. And like, there's just not this, I don't know, this presupposed wall. It's just like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm thinking through. And I think that's great. I I think that's very hopeful, actually.
0: It's hard to imagine, though, that some of the, I suppose, the great theological teachers and preachers of history the martin lloyd jones or the charles spurgeons were it's hard to imagine them being tolerated in many churches either side of the pond these days isn't it
1: yeah that's really true and i think too it just can be communication styles um I find with the where our culture's at with this sort of postmodern, you know, we, we have to remember like when Spurgeon lived and all these people lived, most people lived their lives as if there was an objective truth about reality, right? Most people live, they might say, I disagree with Spurgeon. He's too strong about what he says, but they're not operating from the fundamental assumption that nobody can actually claim to know what he's saying. And so I think we have to step back a bit in our culture today and realize that most people are not like you might say, well, I disagree with you. And they're hearing you're disagreeing with my being because yes, <laughs> they're yes. they're not approaching the world as if there's an objective reality to be known and discussed and debated and disagreed upon. It's really more like, why are you attacking me? Because everything has just sort of been relegated into this my truth sort of scenario. And so we have to, you know, even when we do apologetics or evangelism, even we almost have to stay, take a step back and just make a case for the existence of truth. Um, to even be able to present in a way that can be palatable to people.
0: And to make clear that when we criticize or disagree on issues around sexuality or morality or, or attitudes towards honesty and integrity, whatever it might be, that actually we are disagreeing with your perspective. We are not slighting you as an individual. I mean, the fact that we have to almost continually affirm that, does strike that society has has lost something of its ability to think beyond itself. We are very self-focused now, aren't we?
1: Mm. We are, and I think that there's sort of two realities coming together to inform that. So you have uh, just what we've been talking about, the rejection of the idea that absolute truth can be known if it even exists, especially when it comes to religion and morality, kind of those two issues but also you combine that with the cultural messaging and I don't know what it's like there in the UK but almost every media TV show movie that's pumped in through our streaming platforms is telling us that we're perfect just as we are. Yeah. That yeah. you know what you're going to find inside of your heart your deepest desires are what's good about you. So you just need to name those things and live them out. So if you combine that with the rejection of that absolute truth on those things can be known anyway, well then you you just have a culture that's ripe for this idea of the deepest truth, I'm just going to find it inside of myself because what I'm going to find there is good. Whereas the Christian story is the direct opposite. You're going to find in Christianity that your deepest desires are actually in contradiction to what's actually objectively good. So that's why we have repent and believe, right? We have to turn from those things and follow Christ and realize that we're sinners. And and this is such a countercultural message. I tell people one of the biggest challenges, maybe in like the 90s and 2000s, the biggest challenge was trying to uh, do some good apologetics to help people realize the Bible's trustworthy or this or that. And that's still very, very important, of course. But the biggest challenge to evangelism today is just convincing people they're sinners, because every message that's being pumped at them is that actually what they're going to find inside of themselves is gold. And they just need to, to let that out into the world.
0: So, how do we. Because. The idea of deconstructing, as we've said already, the the, the sort of examination, the, the picking apart of what I believe to determine whether it actually has, as I said earlier on, the, the pure gold of the gospel at the heart of it or whether it is the dross that actually is getting in the way of the gold shining clearly. I mean, that's not a bad thing. But how right. do we protect guide? secure Mm. that path. So it Mm. takes us to a valid, positive outcome in God rather than bounces us off the cliff and we abandon all hope or twists us and and misshapes us so that we follow a pathway that is a a perversion of the gospel. Mm.
1: Well, so my first piece of advice on that would be sort of similar to the social justice conversation. Uh in in writing this book on deconstruction, originally I'm I'm I have a co-author and originally we were going to write it um from the perspective of like hey there's this good kind of deconstruction and then there's this bad kind, right? But the more we researched deconstruction, the more elusive that good kind became. And so what we're going to be you know kind of trying to persuade people in the book to do is like Yes, it is biblical and good to press hard on your faith. Investigate your beliefs, ask the hard questions, don't push down your doubts, engage with all of that. Um, but let's maybe not call that deconstruction because deconstruction is a word that actually comes out of postmodernism and it is largely expressed as a rejection of absolute truth. And so, let's use words like, you know, re- restoring our faith or um Even, you know, even I, we were kind of thinking about this in the book. Even if somebody investigated all the evidence, they believe objective truth exists and they decide Christianity is not true. I still don't think I would call that deconstruction because you're still operating in the realm of objective truth. So I say, yes, you know, the Bible is full of language of test every spirit, Mm -hmm. hold fast to what is good. Uh, The Bereans are praised for checking out what Paul said and making sure it lined up with scripture and i think that we have a biblical mandate to to do these kinds of things but we don't need a postmodern word to describe that that that's you know restoration reformation discernment sanctification we have lots of words that are within the realm of uh, historically christian terminology and biblical terms um because here's my main concern you have a christian kid who's like man i want to know why i believe the bible's true or decide for myself if i think it's true well, if they think they're in deconstruction and they go online and search the deconstruction hashtag, the only information that's going to come through mm-hmm. their newsfeed is anti-Bible material. And that's the thing. It's like they're not going to get both sides of the story with that word. And so I think that um, churches need to get maybe a little bit more open to the idea of creating space for people to process their doubts, um, their doubts and their questions, and maybe even providing a once-a-week place where you have a knowledgeable person that can lead it, but can give people space to wrestle with these things. Maybe that's an area the church hasn't been so great at, but I'm seeing a lot of hope in that area too. There's uh, just at a church that appointed a, a, a position of pastor of worldview and apologetics, and that's literally this pastor's job, is to help shepherd and guide and pastor people in the area of worldview. And I, I so I do see an, a, a good trend in that, and hopefully the church will get even better at that.
0: Yes, and perhaps the starting point for that is for church leaders to be willing to look not only at their faith and what they believe, but also the practices and the attitudes of the church and be prepared to not just sing from the party line, but to actually take a long, hard look at it and go, is this helping or is this hindering?
1: Mm. Yeah, and, and it's I think that I think there has been a lot of fear in the church to engage with some of these things. Um, but we're this up and coming generation. Cause I, you know, I just, I love Gen Z. I just have such a heart for this up and coming generation, but they're not going to be satisfied to just be told what it is. They, they, ha- they're going to have to wrestle with it themselves and they're going to have to, um, you know, be shepherded and discipled. And that's where maybe that's another area where the church could really reclaim some ground is in the area of real discipleship. But again, you know, you have that big mega church model. It's very difficult to do discipleship when you have, um, people can so easily get lost in the shuffle when you don't have, you know, just that that sort of environment and culture of discipleship. But discipleship is messy. It's going to get a little messy. And um, yeah, I think the church needs to get a little better at that.
0: And the truth is, perhaps that's what we need to do, to learn to disciple better. Because, you see, I started away this conversation saying when I first heard about deconstructing faith, I thought, well, that's no bad thing. Strip away the dross, find the gold, let's move forward with something that is resilient and has depth. And, well, was my experience of challenging my faith and questioning my faith throughout the rest of my life. The reality is, of course, that deconstruction is perhaps more intentionally negative than discovering the truth, it deliberately seeks to tear apart. And in tearing apart, to rob people of the very tools that they need to actually obtain a a clear and coherent way of understanding the assessment and the exposure of our faith to the bright light that allows us to see that it is true. And yet, the Bible is crystal clear. Not that we should tear apart our faith, but that we should be willing to test it, that we should be willing to examine it, that we should be willing to shine the light of Scripture upon it and on the things that we are told of it, even if we are told these things by an angel to determine if they are true, if they are right, if they are God's plan for our life. And the bottom line is, don't deconstruct and cast away your faith, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling to know the truth of God for us in the place where we are. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. My guest today is Elisa Childers. You can find her at elisachilders.com. Her books, including the one that is coming soon on the whole thing of deconstruction, are available online and in good bookshops. Elisa, lovely to spend this time with you. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Great talk. Thank you.
0: And thank you as well to my producer, Rachel, who helped put this program together. I'm Paul Hammond. Don't forget, you can join me next week for another Life Issues. Ta-da!